Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have an old friend, Rod Jefferson, as a return guest. Rod is a fantastic sales enablement practitioner. He has worked at a number of organizations that you'll be very familiar with, including Oracle, Marketo, Salesforce, PayPal, and Siebel. And he's been responsible for driving sales performance improvement throughout the organization. He is also author of a brand new book, which is just coming out, called Sales Enablement 3.0. And he runs, or he has a program on Udemy all about sales enablement. So I want him to talk to us today about what sales enablement is, what it isn't, and where it goes wrong, how it can bring value, and the mistakes people make in failing to align sales enablement with the rest of their sales and marketing operation. Rod, welcome. Marcus, thanks for having me. Absolutely excited to be here with you. Excellent. So, Rod, tell me this. What is sales enablement? It's interesting. Sales enablement is one of those things, kind of like marketing lately, or I work in hospital. It's a broad term, but being one of the godfathers, and I believe one of the folks that actually created the nomenclature, I explain it this way. It's all about getting the right people in the right conversations, the right way with the right tools. That ultimately leads to accelerated speed to revenue, increased seller productivity, and ultimately customers for life driving revenue. Okay, so what is sales enablement not? (laughs) Great question. It is not training, first of all, solely. Training to me is all about one-time spot events with no long tail behind it, with no iteration, with no continued growth, and with limited metrics. It's also not the fixers of broken things and broken people. It's interesting. I've been in companies where I've consulted and also worked in where things like, we don't have enough pipeline. Well, they say, Marcus, throw training at it. Our people can't handle discovery and qualification. Well, throw training at it. Or we have a hard time covering objection handling. You know the answer, throw training at it. So that's what it's not. It's also not the answer to every single question. Sometimes it's a hiring issue. Sometimes it's a leadership issue. Sometimes it's a communication issue. Not always is enablement the answer to every question or everything that goes wrong. So let's speak to this issue around training and in particular corporate training, because you touched on something that's near and dear to my heart. I see so much corporate training and there is no real measurement of its impact. It's a tick in the box for the uh, learning and development team. And they can say, we've delivered training. And they parachute someone in who's quite entertaining. And they feed them from a fire hose about a lot of technique. And then they go away. And you see a little boost in energy for a couple of weeks. And then it plummets again. And people revert back to what they learned first. So help me understand this. In terms of the conversation that people need to have internally around their commitment to lasting performance improvement. What does the sales enablement practitioner need to talk about and get agreement from senior leadership to make a program work? 
Well, there are a number of things. I, I agree with you in your assessment that in most corporate situations, training is a single event where enablement is an ongoing occurrence. And I think that's where our sales enablement practitioners need to start. The problem with training is it answers the question of what. It does not answer the question of why. Enablement is all about the why. Why do we need to do this? Why are we moving this direction? And how does it align to the overall scope, vision, and goals of the company? And I think the problem is sales enablement practitioners traditionally have been starting with trying to fix the problem rather than really stepping back to assess what's going on and then moving forward to find um, not just the assessment, but also the answer to this. And sometimes the answer is Tylenol. Sometimes the answer is Vicodin. And sometimes the answer is an amputation or extraction to simply stop the bleeding right now. So if we get away from the what and start focusing on the why, that's the first step towards moving to enablement. But the big step really comes in working with that first and second line manager. Because as we both know, what's important to a leader is imperative to a seller. And we can give you the best program in the world, program that's aligned to processes, tools, platforms, et cetera. But if it's not owned and adopted, and most importantly, Marcus, modeled by the sales leader, it's dead in the water. So really, we should be looking at sales management enablement before we look at sales enablement. Absolutely. That's the best practice of mine. I always start with the first and second line manager. Here's an example. Okay. Let's say let's say we're doing an we're doing a, a certification or accreditation. I first start with the leaders and explaining what's going on. Secondly, I actually utilize them as the model when we record what best practice looks like. And then thirdly, always stay engaged with that first and second line manager. If that means sitting in their their biweekly meetings, ongoing one-on-ones, but you have to make sure that they're modeling this. Otherwise, as I said, it's going to die on the vine. Okay, as you well know, I'm not necessarily one to make friends on this podcast. In my experience, the majority, and I'm going to use that advisedly, but the majority of sales enablement practitioners are people in desperate need uh, to try and find a justification for their own existence. (laughs) When you are recruiting and building your sales enablement team, What are the qualities, the red threads that run through the best in the world? First of all, I agree. There's a lot of job justification going on out there and it's being labeled sales enablement. So thanks for the honesty. Now to answer your question, I actually like starting with someone that has actually carried a bag prior. And what I mean is they've done some form of selling. I don't care if you were a BDR. I don't care if you're an AE. I don't care if you were a a customer support or or an account manager, but there's an enormous amount of credibility around being able to say, I have walked in those shoes, so I understand how comfortable or uncomfortable they are. Secondly, I look for someone that, and I know this is going to sound odd, but someone that actually thinks with their ego and enables with their heart. And let me explain what I mean there. I need someone that thinks these people need to know everything I know about enablement. That's the ego piece. But I also need someone that knows how to temper it down and really focus on how to make these folks bigger, faster, and stronger in their given role. Because as we both know, what's too technical for one role is not technical enough for another. BDRs, SDRs, surface level. AEs, let's go an inch deeper. 
the sales consultants, we got to go deep. And then with the account managers, we've got to go deep and wide. So someone that is focused on the buyer's journey, not sales process, sales methodology, sales stages, and sales tools. It's where do we fit into the buyer's program? Secondly, it's someone that is not afraid to get out there and get their hands dirty with sales folks. I love going out on sales calls. And I think there's enormous credibility in that piece too, because that gives us an opportunity to hear what's going on in the real world and then come back and be that hub that spokes out to every other part of the organization, i.e. product marketing. We love the company pitch, but slide seven gets a little fuzzy. Can we either smooth that out or take it out? Product management. I'm hearing the same request eight, 10 times. How do we get this moved up on the release cycle? Sales. What I'm realizing is I think we need probably a bit more season in our sales folks than what we have right now. And especially in COVID, they're available and they're out there. And then finally, going back to HR and L&D and saying, you know what, from a talent assessment and acquisition perspective, this is precisely why I, as a sales enablement leader, need to be a part of the interview process for our sales folks. Interesting. So what are the habits that make a really effective sales enablement practitioner? I think it's, again, let me take you through that sales cycle. It's the talent and acquisition support. It's being a part of that front end of interviewing because of a couple of things. One, we're looking at whether or not these individuals have the propensity to perform and complete the tasks that'll be tossed at them during the onboarding period. Secondly, as sales enablement practitioners, because we work with with sales folks so much, our BS filter is much higher than most. Then when you get to onboarding, it's all about making sure that you've got a couple of components there, making sure that you've got a standardized, first of all, consistent onboarding program. There should be some distance learning pieces in there that will validate the learning. Then there's also should be a stand and deliver certification or accreditation that then not only validates that they get it, but that they can message in position. And it also takes someone that is willing to listen more than talk. Because most of the time, enablement is not about fixing. It's really about hearing what the problems are and diagnosing those problems and then aligning a long-term project process or program that now will assess and then put in place a solution for that pain. So to summarize the habits, they need to have a planning habit, a listening habit. They need to get out and speak to the customer regularly. They need to interview regularly so that they can see whether or not the standards that they have designed into the process are uh, being followed. And they need to also be involved in designing the recruitment process for salespeople. They need to spend regular time in the field with salespeople, speaking to real-life customers. They need to take what they learn and regularly collaborate with product marketing, with HR, with marketing, uh, with product development, with the consulting team, uh, as well as with sales. So these are people who have a roll-up-the-sleeves mentality. They're down in the trenches with the troops. They're seeing firsthand instead of listening to third-party moderated and doctored accounts. So they're actually hearing straight from the end customer what's working, what isn't. They're seeing the salespeople in the field and seeing what learning has been implemented and what hasn't. Is that a fair summary? 
You have nailed it. I think I would put a bow on it by saying sales enablement, true practitioners need to be assertive without being aggressive. And also, they really need to be woven and ingrained into the fabric of not only sales, but the company as a whole. If you really want to make an impact, you've got to be on that top five list of initiatives for the company wide. And it has to be from top down, cannot be a sales enablement initiative. So go into more detail on that. So I'll give you an example. In one company I was working in, in the beginning of our year, and we're setting our priorities for the year, my CEO actually said one of the priorities this year is that we're going to enhance and we're going to fully adopt sales enablement as a part of the company, not just in the sales organization, but we're going to have them partner with the L&D org. We're going to have them partner with alliances and channels. This has to be something that has true meaning and that is being driven from the top down in the organization. Otherwise, it's just another sales enablement project. Okay, which means that the sales team are probably running a book on when this too will pass. Absolutely. But if it comes from the top down, let's go back to my statement earlier. What's important up top is imperative and more and more imperative as you move lower in the organization. Okay. Um, So now most of us are operating in a highly virtualized environment. How can sales enablement lead the charge? to adapt to this working remotely, selling over platforms like Zoom? I think there are really kind of four steps here. And first of all, I will say that virtual selling is in caps, bold, italicized, flashing signs, the next normal. It's going to be here for a while. I don't foresee this changing anytime remotely soon. So with enablement, we can do the four steps. First of all, teach our sellers how to build rapport virtually and remind them this is going to be the most personalized selling you have ever done in your career, whether you're new or whether you're an old salty dog and legacy seller that's been doing it for ages. Why do I say that? Because people are inviting you into their home now. You're now in an intimate setting where their family, their pets, everything else is. Respect that. So when I say build rapport, it's not about looking behind you and going, oh, you went to the same uni that I did, or hey, you like the fish. Be authentic and be real, right? People understand that this is a difficult time. You don't have to reiterate that. I think we've gotten past that part. That just doesn't feel, it feels kind of disingenuous these days. The next is work with your sellers to create a virtual selling community. And what I mean there is making sure that you're sharing those best practices. Hey, I had this conversation and the person said this and I responded this way. I wish I would have said something different. Or they got a really good response from this. Or look, I think I figured out how to crack the code on how to be real and genuine virtually versus sitting across the table. The next is work and remember that these are humans that are selling. We've got to teach these people how to fight virtual fatigue, which is very real. Sometimes it doesn't require a Zoom call. Sometimes pick up the phone and call someone. Other times, Get your sales leaders to do, I I have one sales leader, he's doing something similar to uh, a game show, a Jeopardy game, to kind of make things fun during their team meeting, not just always talking about forecasting and numbers. The next is, remember that you're working with humans. Don't peanut butter across the entire team. Stop for a moment, and when you're doing those one-on-ones, find out how the person is doing individually. How are they dealing with these difficult times? And a very simple way that I've figured out 
how to help sellers is this. It's a single three-part question. Do you want me to listen? Do you want me to coach you? Or do you want me to fix? It changes the entire atmosphere of the call. Two reasons. One, it shows that individual that this meeting is all about them. And secondly, because we are natural fixers as, as leaders, it gives us an opportunity to put on the right ears. And the final piece is, no matter what you do, although it is virtual, always remind them from a customer service perspective, everything begins and ends with the customer. You are here to help, not to sell. Again, if only. If the only. grim reality is that most salespeople are transactional. They're fixated on getting their number in this month, this quarter. They're being beaten by their management in order to do that. The management in turn are being beaten by their leadership and the leadership is being beaten by the investors. And it takes someone very brave to say, you know, we're going to buck the trend. We're not going to go down that road. So what can enablement do to support leadership to have a grown-up adult conversation with investors who are fixated on destroying the business by having them over-assign quota, get anything in this month, this quarter, whatever you have to do, strip out next quarter's pipeline to get the deal in? How can sales enablement support leadership so that they can have a grown-up conversation with people who are fixated on their selfish greed rather than building a well-structured business with good fundamentals that is focused on creating happy customers for life? Well, it, it all starts with a simple statement, and that is the way that we've always done it no longer exists. So if we keep doing it the way we do it, we're going to not only lose competitive edge, we'll lose market share, we'll lose people, we'll lose mindset, and we'll also lose brand. And what I mean by that is there was a time where we owned our own brand as a company. We pushed out whatever we wanted folks to know. Not today. There's too much readily available information. So we've got to get to those stakeholders. We've got to get to those leaders. And we've got to talk about designing, building, and executing a completely different communication strategy. And it starts with humanity, compassion, empathy, and EQ. And I know that sounds like it's really fuzzy words, but it's not. We have to start selling with people and through people, and it can't just be about numbers. Yeah, of course, oh, we're all in sales. Come on, and Rod. You, you know I know what you're in, saying. You know that investors are going to say, well, we're not running a bloody holiday camp. So oh, what I, do you have I to agree. say to them? I agree. And, and it's not about running a holiday camp. But at the same time, if you don't start treating people differently, your numbers are going to go even further than they are now. It has to change. To your point, the system has to be bucked. Because we're not working with the same rules anymore. We're not playing the same game that we were before. If we keep doing things the way that we've always done it, your business will die. And, and it will die a slow, painful death. And it'll be dead before you even realize that it's gone. But now, now we have another problem, because I agree with you 100%. The research on this that was conducted on the S&P 500 shows that highly engaged employees deliver 430% higher profit per employee and 290% higher revenue per employee, have 40% lower churn, 20% higher productivity, and share price over 2010 to 2016 in companies with highly engaged staff 
increased by over 300% per annum higher than all the rest. So uh, I, I get it. However, the problem that we have is investors don't give a damn. If they've got 40 companies that they're investing in, they're hoping that one will make it to unicorn status, maybe mm-hmm. a couple Agreed. of whales and a couple of elephants, and the rest, they don't care whether they crash and burn. How do we get past this in an environment where you have so many founders asking what I think is the wrong question, which is, can you help me get funding? Really fucking stupid question, if I can be perfectly blunt, because <laughs> the question you should be asking is, can you help me build a rock-solid business with strong fundamentals, highly engaged employees, and lifetime customers who love us to death. Now, if you were asking that question, I'd respect you. Just simply going out and asking, can you help me get funding? Because of the delusion that you might be one unicorn. And when you bear in mind, 80% of the companies that are invested in VC routinely die on their ass. Okay? So how do you have the conversation uh, with investors so that they don't drive you uh, into the ground? <laughs> that is a, a very valid and a tough question. You're right, because they're trying to find that one unicorn. And what did that one unicorn do? What, is, what are the unicorns right now doing is what I would be researching if I am that founder. What are the uni- true unicorns right now doing that the others aren't doing, that other 80% that's not making, right? And then translate that into your business. What can you do to separate yourself? And you know what? It could start with leadership. And it generally does start with leadership. I know, surprise, surprise, shocking. If you've got someone that only cares about dollars and cents and we can only get there one way, that's your first problem. If you've got someone that thinks that their idea is the best on the planet and although other things are working, we don't need to go into figuring out how they're working. There's your second problem. Do a little research up front and find out what's going on. If I'm talking to investors, my first question to them is not who are your unicorns, but how can you connect me with them so that I can talk to them? Because I want to come back with a very well-informed answer for you. And you're right. It's not how can I get funding? Those days are dead and gone. It's how can I make sure I'm not wasting your time and wasting my time because I'm going to be that one damn unicorn. And the only way I'm going to do it is that I know what I'm doing and what I'm talking about. And there are people that are out there that have done this before. Don't recreate the wheel. Take the wheel and adjust it for your vehicle. So what are the unicorns of today doing differently that the ones that are dying, you know, falling flat on? I think what I'm seeing is, first and foremost, they're tracking productivity versus measuring, act, instead of measuring activity, as we were just talking about, right? Look, never confuse activity uh, with productivity. Just because someone's busy doesn't mean that, or even overwhelmed for that matter, does not mean that the company or the investors sees, acknowledges, and validates all the activity, right? The company around or, or the people around may see a lot of activity, but what's it actually leading to? So here's a, a small caveat. Productivity is about, as we know, specific, measurable, relevant, time-bound, all of those fun things are smart. It's a has a direct impact. And here's the ding. They focus on the customer. And how you can have a direct impact on the customer, the business culture, because culture is what happens when no one is watching. And it's created and it's fostered by the leadership team. And of course, revenue. Would you agree, Marcus, that sales is focused on tying emotion to the person involved, not just the individual? I'm assuming not just the company? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, people, okay, people so, buy. Absolutely. So Companies with that said, 
what they're doing is they listen, they learn, then they lead, right? Because sales isn't always, as I said earlier, about giving answers, but it's more about asking the right questions. So this means we've got to create a deeper discovery and qualification process. And we also need to focus on developing relationships as the backbone. And that's when things start to turn the wheel. Look, no one likes to be sold to. I don't care if you're buying a vehicle or you're buying technology. What you have to find out is what is that pain? Why is there pain? And how can I help you solve? What's the level of that pain? And how can I help you from the experience of working with me and my company only? Because we don't sell products. We don't sell solutions. You've got to start focusing on the experience. What can we do different? And what are we doing differently from everyone else in the competitive space? This then raises a whole raft of questions. So let me think. Thankfully, that's what we need to do. That's the whole point of Sales Enablement 3.0 is to raise the questions differently and stop asking the same stupid questions that we've asked three million times before. One of the really interesting lessons I've learned this year from my pal Bob Mester, who wrote Demand Side Sales, is he makes the observation that customers don't buy your product, they rent it. They hire it for a period of time for as long as it's delivering the outcome. And that experience, the results that they are paying for, that's what they care about. You You could get away with it before because there was lack of transparency. But now, virtually everybody has access to the sum total of human knowledge with a few uh, clicks of the keyboard and taps of the mouse. They speak to one another. There are review sites all over the shop. And if you are not getting good reviews and that experience is not rock solid, you will rapidly lose market share. You will lose customers. And customers will be very vocal about their poor experience. So I think sales enablement needs to be exceptionally close with the whole customer success and user experience side of the business. 100% Um, agree. And I don't know whether or not it's right, and I'm still mulling it over at the moment. I suspect context by context it will be different. But my sense is that the customer experience function is where everything needs to point to. Because if you don't understand the customer journey, if you don't understand how to make it a wow experience, then very, very quickly, your marketing and your sales efforts will be for naught. If you are not managing the conversations that people are having behind your back, even when you know, they're, they're always talking about behind your back, you just don't necessarily always know it. And in this day and age, with the likes of Glassdoor, Your employees are telling uh, home truths about what it's like to work for you. Your customers on review sites and user forums are saying stuff. And this is where I think investors really need to wake up because it's all fine and dandy coming up with the next mousetrap, but no one's going to beat a path to your door. First of all, unless they know they need it. Secondly, unless they are confident that you can help them deliver the outcomes that you want and that you have their best interests at heart. And if you are burning through your sales force and the, the sales floor is littered with the corpses of burnt out salespeople, 
who've been told to do stupid things and it's not working. And you've got a middle management layer that has no idea what the hell they're doing and certainly don't know how to cope. Um, then you're in for a very expensive and short-lived painful experience. Oh, you said a mouthful there, my friend. Um, let's start with customer experience. You're absolutely right. Everything must start and end in that customer experience piece. Because to your point, uh, companies' reviews are being shared. People are putting things out there. You've got to understand what's being said about you. And you've got to also approach that with a tempered spirit of why is this happening? And is this actually accurate? Or wow, I didn't even realize we were that bad. Because I've seen leaders actually make that statement. I didn't realize things were that bad. And it doesn't mean that you're not getting deep enough down into the uh, organization. What it says is the people that should be owning that function is not speaking up clearly enough and timely enough to you. And you're right. It, it has to shift away from the way we've done things. Here's a thought. There was a time where sellers really focused on kind of how can we help Mr. and Mrs. Customer? How can we help you decrease time to revenue? How can we help you increase productivity? How can we, you know, enhance your strategy and your architecture and your execution? Those days are gone. I think a fundamental shift would be how can we help our clients maintain and hold on to the current clients they're having or that they have? And I think it, it's relatively simple in concept, but difficult sometimes in execution. It's focusing on things like how can we help them increase profitability? How can we help them reduce costs? How can we help them mitigate risk? And finally, we've both said it stop talking about products, stop talking about solutions, start focusing on business outcome and the experience that we can give you that you cannot get anywhere else. This then points to another misunderstanding, I believe. It used to be something that you control, which is your brand. But I think today I your customers Definitely. determine your brand. They determine what it means, what it stands for, what the experience is like, because they're the ones living it, but equally, they're the ones telling everybody else about it. And, and we know an unhappy customer is going to talk to 10x people more than a happy customer will. Yeah, there's the 3555 rule. <laughs> if a customer's happy, they'll speak to three. If they're unhappy, they'll tell five who will tell 55 each. And that's the kind of uh, exponential. <clears throat> I think this also speaks to another area where I believe that sales enablement should be playing a part but I don't believe is in most cases, which is the sales meeting. Oh. I think the old traditional sales meeting of death by forecast and pipeline review is long dead, or it should be. It needs to be consigned to the annals or the annals of history, one or the other. <laughs> um, and a sales meeting should not be a painful experience for the salespeople where you have to sit there and you get your seven minutes or 10 minutes of misery or glory, depending on how well you're doing, whilst you then spend an hour to an hour and a half listening to other people live from this work of fiction called a forecast. And it's a weekly <laughs> ass-kicking meeting. Absolutely. A sales could be something that they look forward to because they're going to learn from it, that they treat it with the same level of excitement of the next Bond movie. When they're there, they have fun because they're learning, they're contributing, they have a voice. And I think the other element of the sales meeting, which is woeful, but is in desperate need of a revamp, 
is other departments who are affected by sales need to be involved and participate. And if you're in software, I think operations and finance and marketing and product development and the consultants all need to be there. The pre-sales people need to be there. The customer success people need to be in on it. And whilst it sounds a lot more cumbersome, they can give you their feedback of the impact sales is having on their function. And customers should occasionally be in on the sales meeting so they can tell you exactly what it is that you are doing well and what you're doing to piss them off. And we should be listening. In this day and age where we are all operating virtually, there is no reason why you cannot listen to and with permission record calls the unbridled, unfiltered, honest feedback that customers are giving to the customer success and customer support people, to the salespeople. We should montage those conversations and play them to the sales team, play them to marketing, and play them to leadership. But I don't think that's happening. The only company that I know does this is Authentics, run by a lady called Amy Brown. And they listen to over, I think it's a billion calls a year. And they run the analytics on this. When they go to their uh, clients, they're getting exactly the reaction you said earlier, which is, I had no idea that was what was happening. That's what the experience is of customers. Or, oh, that's brilliant. So that's what they love. Because it's not all negative. But it just strikes me that we are missing a massive trick. And we should be pivoting to take advantage of the COVID and the lockdown uh, environment. Uh, to massively up our game. Oh, you absolutely nailed it again. Um, man, there, there are three points that you just threw out that really, really resonated. First of all, about the sales meeting. Let me go back to what I said earlier. And that is why I start my meetings with, do you want me to listen? Do you want me to coach or do you want me to fix? Because this should not feel like you're someone, they're going to military boot camp or even worse. They're going to the dentist. Look, we all need to go, but I don't know anyone that puts a big star on their calendar that they have to go to the dentist. People do the same thing with sales forecast meetings. It's because these are not one-on-one meetings where I'm coming to be heard. This is come in, give me, as a sales leader, give me what I need so I can put some numbers in that may or may not, and most of the time are not accurate. And then I can go back and I can, excuse me, share these broadly with my team. And I'm going to temper them anyways, because I know sometimes you've got happy ears and you come up with numbers that are off. Well, guess what? That's because the leader, the sales coaches, excuse me, the sales managers are not coaching. They're simply managing and they're filtering information. So if I'm we first focus, <laughs> yeah, sales managers, because now if we started creating more leaders and more coaches, then they take the mentality of listen, then learn, then lead rather than Give me what I need and then go away. Because then the salesperson goes, I could have just sent this in an email. It's useless. And I could have walked away feeling better about myself from the email than I did walking away from that meeting. That's one. The second is about pulling all of the lines of business together. I agree. Something I've always practiced as a best practice across my career, something I call the sales enablement council. And that's on a monthly or quarterly basis, you bring all the lines of business together sales consulting, alliances and channels, product marketing, managed product management, sales, all of those. And the, the purpose of this is, is communication, collaboration, then orchestration. So let's get away from the, the fluffiness there. 
communication. Let's make sure everyone knows what's going on and there's an annual enablement calendar and what we've got planned and what we need from each of those teams Why and what their roles and responsibilities. Pardon Why me? Why only annual? It's an annual, annual enablement calendar. Ah, right. Okay, of, yeah, yeah. Of what's going to happen this, this calendar or business right. year, right? The second is collaboration. I need everyone to understand what's happening in the other organization. So product management, what's the release cycle look like so that we can now talk to product marketing so that they can get us new messaging and positioning and competitive info so that we can now move that into the sales boot camp so that we're getting out the, the most current information and we're working with HR to put together hiring cycles so that everything starts to connect the dots, right? The third is, <laughs> you're right, there's so much information out there today that's available, but people are afraid to get that information. Companies are afraid. I call it the fear of truth. If you were to go and actually ask your customers what they thought on a regular basis and not so that you can increase your <laughs> NPS score, but really oh. genuinely care, you would hear before they go out and complain what the problems are, what's broken, what needs to be fixed, and what's working really well that you need to do more of. But companies are so fearful of the truth if that truth is negative that they let it fester like a boil. And suddenly when it does pop and explode, it just spews everywhere and it's out of their control. And there's nothing they can do to get their arms around it, more or less temporary. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I can go down so many avenues to rant, but I'm going to temper it all. Okay. So let, let me ask you this, compensation. One of the things that I have a real issue with is the amount of compensation schemes that drive negative unintended consequence. So what can sales enablement do uh, in order to help the leadership put together effective compensation and reward systems, not just money, but recognition, training, career advancement, all that kind of stuff, in order to drive desirable behaviors that deliver the outcomes that the customer wants because you're getting your salespeople to do the things that serve the customer. Starts with where you just ended, that serves the customer. Look, how's the old adage go? Compensation drives behavior. What if we flip that and said behavior drives compensation? Let's think about that one for a moment, right? If we teach the right behaviors, it's going to then end in a positive level of compensation. Step way back. You can't have one approach to compensation because that doesn't scale. Again, that was old school and that worked, right? If I dangle the carrot enough, and you'll get close. And then here's the problem. And this happens every year. I'm going to up the quota. What's that do? You just move the goalpost. I thought I was about to score, but now you just pushed me 30 yards back. Make sure, first of all, it's consistent. And enablement should be included in these compensation questions because we are the ones that are going to create the program that's going to drive the behavior that's ultimately going to end in compensation. It's as simple as that. And, and how do we do it? Talk to compensation, talk to your sales leaders, not just in dollars and cents, but why are we compensating the way that we are? What does the end goal of success look like? Not just increased sales, we know that. Is it about retaining our top sellers? Is it about creating succession plans 
and moving those and creating more leaders instead of those sales managers we talked about? Is it about positively impacting the brand? Is it about positively impacting how we're viewed on Glassdoor and such outwardly? Some companies, it's, I want to be on that great places to work list. Guess what? That's going to help drive compensation if you put in the right levers to get you to that point. And happy sellers are productive sellers. Productive sellers continue to sell more. But if we don't know what's driving the behavior, if we don't drive the behavior that's, that's going to end in compensation and we reverse it and say, we're going to comp you on what we want you to do, that's like saying, I want you to go to the movies, but I'm not going to tell you how long it is. I'm not going to tell you who's starring in the movie. I'm not even going to tell you the plot or what type of movie. Is this a romance? Is this an adventure movie? But you're going to go and sit there for two and a half hours. And then you're going to walk out and you're going to give me the best review that I've ever had. That's asinine in real life. But that's what we do with compensation. We've got to change the way we've done things. I can't say it enough. The way that we've always done it no longer works. Well, this then raises yet another critical question, and it comes to management enablement, which is that I I cannot even begin to tell you the number of times I've asked managers, so what is it that motivates the individual salespeople in your team? And I get this slightly dumb look in their faces. Drool starts to pour out the side of their mouth and they go slack-jawed. And again, unless you understand the personal motivation of the individuals within your team, it's nigh on impossible for you to coach them uh, in such a way that you will drive their optimal behavior. And so one of the things that I've implemented where, where I have control over the compensation and the recruitment of salespeople within my software clients. It's really been very interesting. We've now created a recruitment process that intentionally trains people throughout that process to do certain behaviors that they're going to need to um, bring to the job. And in doing that, we've also now made it mandatory that they need to implement what we have trained them in because we're checking for coachability, trainability, curiosity. But we also want to see that they implement what they learn. And what's been really interesting, we've just done this for the first hire in one of my software clients. And throughout the process, we've implemented this. And we've made it a very tough process. For graduate-level recruitment, it's a four-interview process. And each step, they learn how to put in place and verbal upfront contracts uh, to do a journal, to do a pre-call plan and a post-call debrief. The second interview, they need to have demonstrated they've done all of those things. And then we give them tasks. For example, they need to do a strategic analysis of the market in which we operate. The next one, they have to do a competitor analysis. The next one, they have to do an account mapping exercise identifying the typical cast of characters and different job functions, get their financial information, understand the structure of the business uh, in terms of sister companies, parent companies, and so forth. Now, by doing that, we've managed to get one candidate to the final stage who we were delighted to hire because throughout the entire process, she took the coaching, she took the lessons, she was delighted to have it, and she was curious to learn more. And then she implemented it and only got better throughout. Now, um, in the process of doing that, 
we've also implemented a battery of uh, psychometric, behavioral, and motivational tests uh, to identify what their motivations are, how they are likely to behave differently under pressure. We put them under pressure throughout this process, and we've now made the offer on the basis of what her personal motivations are. And by delivering that, her eyes practically popped out of her head because it fed the sweet spots that matter the most to her. Now, we've only done this once, but the experience was great for the candidates in most cases. Some didn't respond well to it at all. But the ones who've made it through have demonstrated that they have what we're looking for in terms of the makeup, the character, the values, the level of curiosity and cognitive abilities, the habits, so that in the notice period, we can now put in place a pre-onboarding process that equips them to start as quickly as possible through the next 120 days after that to be really well prepared so they can get to revenue quicker, they can succeed faster. But we could only do that by putting the time in, in terms of the planning and designing the system to make sure that the business gets what it wants and the candidate gets what they want. So I'm really curious in terms of taking that behavior drives compensation thought further. And applying that to what you manage happens and what you don't doesn't. Because I think far too often, managers are fixated on lag indicators. They're not fixated on managing behavior that is within their control. They're focused on revenue, which has already happened by the time they report it. So your thoughts? I absolutely agree. As I was listening to you, something kept ringing in my head, and that is, you train animals and you enable people to begin, right? Training, again, is about a spot one-time event. Enablement is an ongoing occurrence. And this is where sales managers fall down. To your point, they try and manage and train each team versus understanding what's happening with the individuals, right? And I think from an enablement perspective, one of the biggest mistakes that we've made is the metrics that we use to try and justify the value of enablement. Things like time to first close. That while it's good, it, it's not a measurement of true sales motions or sales behavior. Did they hit that first sale because they fell into a whale or because a bluebird landed and, and this was already in motion before they stepped into that territory? That doesn't tell me whether or not this is a solid person. Right. And it also doesn't show sales leaders, not sales managers, sales leaders, a consistent and scalable way to enable their team. And I don't mean just as far as onboarding, I'm talking about for your continuing folks as well. Another thing that's missing is I'm not seeing sales managers leverage the best practices of their legacy sellers. Right. People move all the time in and out of roles. The problem is when you lose a seller and they walk out the door, what goes with them? All of that enormous amount of knowledge. How do you then find a way to harness all of that tribal knowledge and keep it in-house even after that individual is gone? That's the key that has to happen, is that we are now 
assessing and we're approaching individuals as individuals. Secondly, that we are focused, we being sales enablement, are focused on creating more sales coaches and sales leaders and less sales managers. And then finally, that the manager has to, excuse me, the sales leader has to own the adoption and the execution. And what I mean is sales enablement, quite frankly, we don't drive revenue. And I hate when my peers say that. We don't drive revenue. We're not carrying a bag. We influence and we impact revenue. And we do it in three ways. One is around adoption and execution. And that's the ability to measure the adoption and the usage of all of our implemented processes, programs, productivity tools, templates, et cetera, and how that's impacting the buyer's journey and then ultimately how it's impacting revenue. The second is around seller readiness. We need to be able to determine whether sellers are effectively enabled and ready to maximize their engagement with prospects and customers. How are they approaching pre-call strategy? How are they approaching talking to your ideal customer profile differently when it's a CMO versus a COO versus a COO, et cetera, and not taking, again, a peanut butter approach. And finally, it's the validation with KPIs and metrics. And I'm not talking about smiley sheets and butts and seats. I'm talking about the validation of really tracking and reporting sales activities and tools as it relates to true revenue generating metrics. We do well, that, the ball game changes. I, I think you can change the game dramatically as well. And instead of having HR involved in the exit interview, and yeah, they have a place to do that. But I think enablement and the manager should be doing the exit interview. And those lessons should be built into the next job description. And Absolutely. people who are in post should rewrite the job description based on what's real not what has been cut and pasted by HR from a previous hire. Because very often what you see is a job description is cut and paste from the job description that you used to hire the last failed salesperson. <laughs> so yes. you, we've got to get a lot smarter about this. 95% of your management problems start in the hiring process. If you hired Absolutely. better you wouldn't have most of the management problems, which would free up time for managers who claim I don't have time for coaching in the same way that with average salespeople, and by that I mean bad, they say I don't have time for prospecting. Of course you have time for prospecting if you make time. Um, but the problem is that uh, so often we do what we're comfortable with, not what is necessary. And I think managers, again, it's a great quote. Thank you. And I think managers often see recruitment as an interruption to their day job, whereas in fact, building the bench is a manager's equivalent of prospecting for new business for a salesperson. So we've got to get a lot smarter. And this is where good enablement practitioners can really raise the game by helping managers first. And you know, in the same way that you, know, you put the oxygen mask on yourself, before you put it on your kids in a plane. I think we've got to do that in management enablement and really focus on that. Sales managers are the most undertrained and most precarious people in almost every business I've ever come across. And SRC did a research study at the beginning of 2020 that indicated that 94%, that's 94% 
of all managers were not fit for purpose. Only 6% are. So it's no wonder that in 2019, only 44% of individual reps and only 13% of sales teams hit quota. This year, I suspect the 44% will drop. I think the 13% will probably stay close to that number because the managers will have continued and doubled down to do what they were meant to do. Um, But it's a damning indictment of our profession that 33% of people surveyed in Gartner's October survey um, said that they want a seller-free buying experience. That is the death knell of our profession. And we need to up our game dramatically. So, Rod, in closing, what advice would you give to somebody who is considering a move into an enablement role in order to grow a pair and uh, develop a spine? (laughs) Before I go into that, man, you just nailed it in where the change has to happen. And, And I love that you went into talking about the managers and we've got to change the criteria of what it means to be a sales coach and sales leader versus a sales manager. We've also got to change the criteria of what it means for a seller to be promoted into a leadership role. Just because you are a rock star and you killed it in your patch does not mean that you're going to do the same thing as a leader. And most times it rarely works out well that way with your absolute rock stars. And, and now you've got two problems. You've got an unfit manager and you've also got an open patch that your rock star is no longer covering. So we've got to stop that practice right away. Now, to answer your question, what can they do? Um, As they are looking to transition in, I always recommend um, that they go out and do informational interviews with six to eight different leaders. Find out, we've got LinkedIn. It's pretty obvious and it's pretty easy to find out who people consider. Put a, a survey out. Who would you consider the top five sales enablement practitioners. People are going to answer you. Now reach out to those folks and reach out to them and be prepared with some questions around why. Why do you do things the way you do? Why are you looking to do it differently going forward than the way it's always done? Why do we need to make a shift? And for the person that's coming in, what would you recommend now that you know in hindsight what has worked and what's not worked? You need to find out whether or not this is what I call your candy bar job especially in today's environment. If you're going to make a change, it better be an upgrade. And the candy bar job is something that I would do if I was only paid in my favorite candy bar. For me, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, right? And I don't mean utopia. I'm not talking about unicorns and rainbows, but something that I'm going to enjoy doing and something that I'm going to feel like I'm making an impact and making a difference, not just helping folks to fill up the kitty and and a company to make more revenue. How is it you're going to do this for a chunk of your time of your life during the period you're doing it and find out is sales enablement what I thought it was? Because again, as I started, if you ask 10 people, you'll get 12 different definitions. Then you've got to figure out, is this a large or a small company where I can be most impactful and grow and learn? So when you're talking to those sales enablement practitioners, make sure that you get someone from large companies, enterprise level, and to get some midsize and also some smaller companies. Because the definition of sales enablement, as far as the role and the responsibilities and deliverables, are different at each one of those stages and levels. Don't go out and do what you hate being done to you. And that is, don't go out and try and talk to people 
all in the same space and go, oh, okay, I get it now. You can't peanut butter. You've got to take some time and do your due diligence and make sure that you're asking the right questions. And then you walk away with the answers, questions that are important to you. It's an informational interview. You're not asking them for a job. You're not asking to join their organization. You're doing what every salesperson and, and every great practitioner would love to do. You're stroking the ego and you're getting them to talk about themselves. But make sure they give you what has worked and also what didn't work. Because if you only get the smiley sheets, you're not getting a true view of what enablement is. Because it is a lot of things, but easy is not one of them. Excellent. Rod, look, we've come to the top of the hour. We need to wrap up. I can't thank you enough. This has been incredibly insightful. And I look forward to our many future conversations. How can people get hold of you? First of all, I am absolutely honored always to be on with you, Marcus. I love the fact that you challenge and you force true practitioners to think differently and you're not staying with the status quo. So please keep doing what you're doing. Keep the rants up. Keep pissing people off. I'm okay with that because I think a lot more of us need to do more of that. So to answer your question, on social media all over, if you can't find me, you're not really trying. On LinkedIn, Roderick Jefferson, on both Twitter and Facebook, at The Voice of Rod. You can hit me on email at info at roderickjefferson.com. Find me on the web at roderickjefferson.com or on Instagram at roderick underscore J underscore associates. And as we said earlier, Marcus, coming soon, you'll be able to pick up that book, Sales Enablement 3.0, and you'll get the blueprint to sales enablement excellence. Excellent. And Rod's very kindly offered a discount on his sales enablement course on Udemy. So I'll put the blurb in the write-up on the podcast. The offer is available until December the 12th. 12th. And I'm assuming that's US time. So you might be able to squeeze in at two in the morning if you're in the UK. (laughs) Um, But uh, he's offering a $35 off the price using the discount code enablement, E-N-A-B-L-E-M-E-N-T. And And is it case sensitive? Um, It is not case sensitive. And the course is actually called Applying the Art and Science of Sales Enablement. And it's a fantastic course. So, Rod, thank you. My absolute pleasure. Looking forward to getting together again. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, helpful, useful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe to the Inquisitor podcast. I also have the Scale Ups and Hypergrowth podcast. If you're in the business of growing a tech company very quickly without the wheels coming off, then that might be a good resource for you. And if you want to get in touch, then email me at marcus at laughs, L-A-U-G-H-S hyphen last, L-A-S-T dot com. That's marcus at laughs hyphen last dot com. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.